Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, December 4th, 2021. Today is Wednesday morning, and once again we have our friend Truthfids here with us to present his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 63. In our last few presentations here, we have been discussing themes found in the ministry and epistles of Paul of Tarsus, which helped to establish that the nations to whom he had brought the gospel were indeed the same nations which had descended from the ancient children of Israel. So we have already discussed the substance of Paul's commission from Christ, how Paul himself had applied his commission, the subjects of biblical redemption, and what Paul had meant by the phrase, strangers from the covenants, which I believe we will see a similar phrase as we proceed today in a different epistle. Now we shall continue with the subject of adoption, as that word, as it appears in English Bibles, is only found in Paul's epistles. And in Paul's epistles, it has a very specific apl application. Adoption is not for everybody or the world or all men. It's that simple. Hello, Truthfids. Thank you for being here once again. Praise Yahweh. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh. Yes, yeah, so here we're on to the adoption of Israel, and this is uh, another one of those verses or you know little snippets in the gospel where churches make a huge deal out of that one verse and even build doctrines around it as always and use it to promote universalism right that if he can adopt the quote-unquote gentiles or the europeans well then he can adopt anyone right and all races and all peoples of all colors but what what it's really saying is that um you know if yahweh has out of all the Adamic people, he only chose Israel, right? And that's the, the son that he chose to be his heir. And uh, that heir, unfortunately, you know, we, we went astray. But Christ came down and sacrificed himself to, so that we could be reconciled to him. So once again, we could be back where we once were, uh, you know, in, in Christ's uh, presence, in his gospel. And that's what it really means by adoption. But it's not adopting, you know, some random people or foreign people. It's specifically retaking back the children of Israel. Right, Bill? Right. And and they're taking the word and, and assigning to it a definition that it really didn't have in the ancient world. And the adoption which Scripture speaks of is clearly defined in Hosea chapters 1 and 2, which Peter had repeated, and Peter repeated it purposely in, his, in, in chapter 2, I believe, of his first epistle. The adoption is for the children of Israel. It's for the chosen race. It's not for anyone else. But the word doesn't really mean adoption at, as we use the term adoption today. And, and that's what we're going to learn, I hope, with, with this 77th proof, the adoption of Israel. Within the actual context of Paul's epistles, every one of the five times in which he had used it, which is another and, thing um, 
that denominational Christians don't do. They'll take one verse out of context and throw it around. But very often that's the way they throw the, the word around or the verse around is contrary to the actual context of the scripture in which it appears. And um, Abraham, he, he had um, quite a few children, right? Uh, you know, once Sarah died, he, he married uh, another wife and he had children of her, but only Isaac was the adopted son, right? He inherited everything and the rest got nothing. And I know you're going to mention it a little bit later, but Jacob also was the only real heir to Isaac, right? Esau got nothing. So, so that's really just a clear example of what it means by adoption, right? Well, well, right. It's the setting of a son is what the word actually means. And you could set a son in multiple ways for multiple purposes. The Greek word only means the setting of a son. And if I put a son up for adoption, I will use that word huiothesia. But there's another word, if you are going to adopt that son, there's another word that describes that part of the action. And that word does not appear in Scripture. So just as the denominational churches try to extend the redemption which Yahweh had explicitly promised to the children of Israel, to other races and nations, they do that same thing with the concept of adoption. However, the word only appears in Paul's epistles, three times in Romans, and once he's in Galatians and Ephesians, and Paul himself states explicitly that the adoption is for Israel in relation to Israelites, who are his own kinsmen according to the flesh. There is not a single statement in Scripture which suggests that the adoption of which Paul had spoken which isn't necessarily our English adoption, could possibly be attained by anyone who is not of his flesh, who could somehow imagine that he may magically become an Israelite. So by the order of Paul's epistles in the popular Bible versions, the first and second mentions of the word are found in Romans chapter 8. First, Paul wrote, as the King James Version has it. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He didn't say that they were adopted, as we say in English, but they received the spirit of adoption. Then, a little further on in the chapter, Paul spoke in reference to the creature or whole creation, and said, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails together in pain till now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which had the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And, and the King James translators had actually added a phrase there, to wit, the redemption of our body, because it's clear in the Greek 
that the redemption of our body is what the adoption is. And we have shown that the redemption is only for the children of Israel, that nobody else needed to be redeemed or had an expectation or a promise of redemption. So responding to that, responding to those uses of the word adoption and the King James translations, first, where the King James Version has creature in Romans chapter 8 in verses 19 through 21, and then a little later, creation in verse 22. In every case, the Greek word is the same word, katesis. Then at the end of the chapter, Paul contrasted that same word, creature or katesis, to other things which God had created. So we see that by its use, he could only have meant to refer to a single aspect not the not everything in the whole world or in the whole universe, but a single aspect, a type or kind within the wider creation, and not every single thing which God had created. Paul used that term. This is clear where he used the words any other creature or creation, kitesis, in relation to angels, principalities, powers, things present, and things to come. Secondly, the creature being spoken of in Romans chapter 8, in verses 19 through 22, is the same people whom Paul intended where he used the phrase spirit of adoption earlier in verse 15, and the same people whom Paul had referred to or described as predestinated, called, justified, and glorified in verses 29 and 30 of the chapter. The subjects of his discourse had not changed from one passage to another. And then just a few verses later, in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, Paul makes the explicit insistence that the adoption of which he spoke is for Israel, which he had defined as his kinsmen according to the flesh. So we will get to that momentarily. I should first cite Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, he that formed thee, O Israel. So, in the context of the promises of redemption, we see that Israel is the creation, and it's Israel that needs to be redeemed. So, we read in that same verse, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, and he did form thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. You can call yourself a Christian. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. You can call yourself a Christian. You can call yourself an Israelite. That doesn't make you a Christian or an Israelite in the eyes of God. 
You can only yeah, be. Yeah, did he call? Did he call a nigger, or or is he? Uh, did he give them the law? No, not at all, right? Absolutely, not at all. And all of these things, the people who are the true Israel and the true recipients of God's covenants, must fit all of these scenarios and descriptions which are spelled out in both the prophets and the epistles of the apostles and the gospel of Christ. You and, can't um, imagine. I know we've you... brought it up before, but they love to blend these verses with that um the Romans verse of grafting in the Romans with with the Israelites, right? But as we've explained, it's just because the Israelites, uh, the Romans already were Israelites, and they didn't have the law, so that's why they were wild olive tree. And then they can be blended in with the Israelites under Christ, right? It's as simple as that. Well, well, right. But he's speaking to Romans. He didn't speak to Corinthians about grafting in. He told the Corinthians that their fathers were in the cloud and in the sea with Moses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So what of the Romans? The Romans must have been Israelites. Paul said that at one time they had the truth of God and turned it into a lie. And Paul told them that the laws were written on their hearts and extolled them for following the laws written on their hearts. Because the Romans did found a society by the rule of law and as Paul said, they gave people that were suffering accusations a fair trial and, and things like that that are important in the laws of Yahweh. The Romans had implemented, as Paul said, because they followed the laws written on their hearts, that the general care which man should have for his brother, for his fellow man, for the oppressed, the widow, the orphans that Christ constantly speaks about, Roman society reflected that care, even though it wasn't the perfect godly society, even though it was pagan, and Paul, in that same chapter of Romans, upbraided them for that paganism. But the Romans, in all of the language of Paul of Tarsus, had to have somehow been Israelites, and we can see how they were Israelites, because they descended from the Trojans. But they were ostensibly among those people who left Egypt and made colonies in, in Greece and elsewhere around the Mediterranean, which Diodorus Siculus had described in the closing books of his Library of History. I believe it might be book 40 or perhaps a little later, if there are later books, I don't even remember. But Diodorus Siculus, we, we have translate we have translated, we have presented that passage quite often in our papers, that not all of the Israelites went with Moses in the Exodus, that some of them had departed from Egypt. And we see that in history, perhaps not as clearly with the Trojans, although there are allusions in in the scripture, but we see it just as clearly or more clearly with the Danans, who the Danan Greeks, according to all Greek traditions, had come from Egypt, and they must have been the Israelite tribe of Dan. So they 
being wild olives were still olive trees and were being grafted into a tree which they actually belonged to at some point in a distant past. But all of the other people to whom Paul spoke, he spoke differently because they had different histories and their migrations in the ancient world from Israel. The Corinthians were Dorian Greeks. They weren't Trojans or Danans. They were Dorians, and their ancestors were indeed in the Exodus with Moses, and they came into Greece centuries later from Palestine through Crete. And and we can establish the evidence for that. There's nowhere where that's stated explicitly in ancient history, but we can establish the evidence for that in the classical writings, and we have. So, to understand Paul's epistles, one has to actually understand classical history and how who he was talking to, these various tribes in Anatolia and, and Italy, and what their particular background was. And then Paul's epistles all fall into place. That being said, and before discussing this word adoption further from Paul's epistles, we should discuss its meaning somewhat. So, the Greek word huiothesia is adoption in the King James Version. But by itself, it does not ever truly mean adoption in Greek writings as we use the term adoption in English. The word simply means a placement or a position of a son. There were other words in Greek literature which were consistently used to describe the act of adoption, namely ispoiesis, which is a noun and it means a making into, and a related verb and adjective, ispoieo and ispoietus. While the son can be placed for adoption, where huiothesia is used to describe the act of the placing, and that is the term which was used, it does not describe the actual adoption, which is ispoiesis, to make someone who was placed for adoption into a son by carrying through with the act of adoption. In other words, if I'm your son and you place me up for adoption, you can't afford to raise me or educate me. Um, maybe you have a lot of personal problems or financial problems, and you feel that I might be better off with someone else raising me, someone who perhaps can't have children or, or whose children are grown or gone for some reason and, and wants to have another son. So you place me for adoption. That word is described by the ancient Greek word huiothesia. As we use the term adoption, that word only refers to the act of a natural father giving up a son, while 
Eispoiesis describes the act of the adopting father who takes a child as a son. So there's two words in Greek, and one of them describes one half of the equation, and the other one describes the other half of the occasion of, of the equation. You could put me up for adoption, and we could use that word huiothesia to describe that act. Because you placed me for adoption. You put me in that position. But what if nobody adopts me? What if I'm just an ugly kid? Nobody wants me. What if I have a mean temper? Nobody wants me. What if nobody wants me? You're stuck with me. And I'm stuck with you. Because you don't really want me. So, huiofessi, it doesn't do you any good. It, it doesn't make the adoption. But in Scripture, we never see the term eispoiesis. And that is because the position of sons belongs only to those who had been put off for their sin and lost their position. But they're still physical sons. They don't have to go through the process of eispoiesis. They're already sons. In Scripture, this is the parable of the prodigal son. As the children of Israel had squandered their inheritance and were cast off, but they are accepted back and restored to the huiothesia, to the position of sons in Christ. The lost sheep of the house of Israel, for whom Christ had come, were already sons and daughters. And that is found throughout the promises of reconciliation to those same sons and daughters in the words of the prophets. I'm going to read again from Hosea, from chapter 1. Then, and, and God is addressing the children of Israel and using a child which Hosea had as a, an allegory for that reason. Call his name lo Ami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. That's the process the children of Israel suffered, put, being put off in punishment. But then, in the next verse, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass, 800 years later, that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said unto them, not unto anybody else, but unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. Then, and I'm reading the next verse, then shall the children of Israel, children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, that head being Christ. So Hosea chapter 1 tells us who the adoption is for. And so does Paul as we continue. In Scripture, this is the parable of the prodigal son. He was a son. He was sent off with his inheritance. He squandered it. He came back begging to be one of his father's slaves. But the father was so pleased that he came back that he restored him to the position of a son. But he didn't have to adopt them. He was already a son. That's the story of the children of Israel with Yahweh their God. The lost sheep of the house of Israel for whom Christ had come were already sons and daughters. And in that manner, the same word huiothesia 
can be used, can also be used to describe other things, such as the placing of a son into a position within the household, which is what happened with the prodigal son, or as an heir of the household, as you had mentioned earlier with Isaac in relation to Midian and Havilah and the other sons of Keturah and in relation to Esau and Ishmael, only Isaac was placed as the heir. And that can also that act can also be described as Huyothesia, the placing of a son. The word Huyothesia needs context to see what the son is being placed for. Since there is no other indication in the text of the New Testament that adoption, as we use the term in English, is ever the actual context. In Romans chapter 8, the word huiothesia should have been rendered as the spirit of the position of sons in verse 15. And in verse 23, the phrase, waiting for the adoption, would have been better translated as awaiting the placement of sons, because Paul is speaking to men who's, who had been sons. Their ancestors were sons, sons of Israel. And now, many, many centuries later, Yahweh God is fulfilling the promises made to the fathers and reconciling himself with them. It is dishonest to translate Huothesia as adoption because the word has a much more general meaning and the translators can only have presumed that the word was used by Paul to mean adoption. Yet the overall context of Paul's letters and of the New Testament refute that presumption. That is evident in Romans chapter 9, where Paul uses the same word, huiothesia, a third time, where we cannot assume that he meant it in a different way, and where he informs his readers that the adoption and other things which pertain to Israel are only for the children of Israel, who are Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. And this is clearly the meaning where he wrote, as it is in the King James Version, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, because not everybody in Judea was an Israelite, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the pro the fathers if you're not if you don't belong to the fathers then you're not one of the sons and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all god blessed forever forever amen so paul defines the scope of the adoption right there in those three verses if the adoption is for Israelites in Romans chapter 9, then it was also for Israelites in Romans chapter 8. But Paul knew, as he explained earlier in Romans, that it was 
for all Israelites, both those of Judea and those of the nations which descended from Israel in later times. In ancient times, I'm sorry. I'm trying to read the next paragraph as I'm, as I'm resetting this one. Later in that same chapter, Romans chapter 9, Paul insisted that the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So what is the promise? Where is the promise of Gentiles being redeemed, of non-Israelites being redeemed in the Old Testament? Having said that, he described the promise made to Sarah and then the promise made to Rebekah concerning their children. So believers are not the seed of the promise, but only the descendants of those women, ultimately through Jacob Israel, as Esau had forfeited his birthright, and then Jacob received the promises. The promise is according to those women as they understood it when it was spoken. There's no changing the definitions of words or the meanings of phrases 2,000 years after a promise was made. That's a betrayal. That, that is an abrogation of one's oaths and duties and responsibilities. So it is for that same reason that Paul was comparing the two in that same chapter. Jacob and Esau. It is for that reason that Paul was only praying for his kinsmen according to the flesh, because many Judeans of that time were Edomites and not true Israelites. That's how Christ... And, um, also, uh, but when you think about it, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son uh, for Yahweh, and, and Yahweh, uh, therefore, was willing to sacrifice his son to save the seed of Abraham, right? Well, absolutely. Everything ties in. It, it's not, the New Testament cannot be separated from the understanding of events in the Old Testament. And the people being dealt with in the New Testament are indeed the same exact people with whom Yahweh had dealt in the Old Testament. There's no substituting for Israel in the face of all of these promises and all of these interlocking relationships which we see being explained in the New Testament. If the denominational churches are right, if the universalism of the Roman Catholic Church is right, and we should all be universalists and, and God loves everybody and we could sing Kumbaya with niggers, then every word in the Bible is absolutely useless, null, and void, because words just don't mean what they're supposed to mean. So we may as well just give up and, and make love to the devil tomorrow. Uh, I mean, just forget it. The, throw your Bible in the trash. If the words don't mean anything, throw it away. Well, that's what the churches have done. They have thrown the Bible away. They only hold on to the appearance of the Bible. They don't care about the substance of the Bible. Their church doctrines are absolutely contrary to the Bible, so they hold the Bible up as if they're godly, and they're really teaching the doctrines of devils. 
Yeah, and um, even the blessings were only uh, for sp specific sons and their descendants, right? Like Levi would be the priest, Judah the kings. So likewise, if you just step back and expand it, the, the promises were only to the children of Israel as a whole, right? It, if if the blessings aren't uh, for everybody, why would um, you know the covenant be for everybody as well, right? Clearly well, just one family all the way through. Look at Korah. Korah was a Levite. But Korah wanted, Mo, Moses had, had an organization of the priesthood that he received from, from Yahweh God. And Korah wanted to change that. He, he didn't think Moses was doing good enough. <laughs> he didn't think Yahweh's plan was good enough. Yahweh's organization was good enough. So he came up with his own. And even though he was a Levite, he was destroyed for that. Yeah. Do, do you think um, Josephus puts that down to um, Aaron's two sons dying? And then he said, and then um, Korah used that as proof. See, they're deceiving us. I should be the uh, higher priest now, right? Yeah, you know, that's a probability. It, it's definitely clear to me that Korah must have been envious for some reason. And I think that Josephus is simply trying to interpret that envy. In any event, his plan was different than the plan which Moses presented. And for that, he was punished. He was killed. And, and all those who followed him. So we read in Isaiah chapter 43, a promise to the sons and daughters, to the children of Israel who were scattered abroad in the captivities. And I've already read the first two verses of, or the first verse of this chapter, but now I'm going to read from verse 3. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior, not anybody else's Savior, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Anybody with an understanding of history should know that at this very time, Ethiopia and Egypt, and probably Sheba too because of its proximity, were being overrun with Nubians. So that's this is how Yahweh describes what's happening to Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore, I will give men for thee and people for thy life. What was going on politically is that the Israelites were want to turn for help from the Egyptians against the Assyrians. Well, so that that wouldn't happen, so that <laughs> Egypt wouldn't be able to come and, and help the Israelites against the Assyrians, Yahweh loaded them up with the nigger problem and disabled them. So what we have is an Israel that's helpless because it was the plan of God to send Israel off into captivity, and the Assyrians took Israel into captivity. Perhaps if the hand of God was not involved and Egypt was able to defend itself from the, from the Nubians, that Egypt and Israel would have had a common defense against Assyria and the Assyrian Empire may not have prevailed. 
it it's that simple it's it's global politics on on a smaller scale on on a middle eastern scale but at that time that was the world so since thou was precious in my sight thou hast been honorable and i have loved thee therefore i will give men for thee and people for thy life fear not for I am with thee. Now, this is Isaiah chapter 43, and I've explained in the past, if you look at the progression of the chapters in Isaiah, it's easy to see. The siege of the Assyrians against Judah, against Jerusalem in Hezekiah's time, I think that's in like Isaiah chapters 35, 36, 37, around there. And there's a complete break in the context of Isaiah after chapter 39. And I think it's in chapter 40 or, or maybe 41, but I think it's, no, it's Isaiah chapter 40 that he begins to address the people that are in the wilderness. And, and we see a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40. And in Isaiah chapter 41, he begins to address the islands, which is a word that means coastlands. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. And where it says, who raised up the righteous man from the east, which seems to be a messianic prophecy, we see that these people in the coastlands must be in the west. And the rest of Isaiah, the last 26 chapters, addresses the children of Israel in captivity. It is very clear they're in captivity. And by that, we know when this was written, that everything from Isaiah chapter 41 forward was not written until after the siege of Jerusalem, after 700 BC, when the siege was lifted, during the closing years of the rule of Hezekiah because that was the last king which Isaiah had mentioned that he had written and prophesied in that time. So Hezekiah died, I think, around 698 or 697. And during those years is when Isaiah must have written these 26 chapters. So my point is that these people are already long in captivity, for the most part, the children of Israel, and very many of the children of Judah who were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, were already long gone. And that's when Isaiah is writing this. And he says, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east at some future point and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. This is all an address to the children of Israel and to nobody else. It's they who are being scattered abroad as this is unfolding, and it's they whom Isaiah is addressing as we see at the very beginning of the chapter, where it says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and formed thee, O Israel, for I have redeemed thee. 
This sets the entire context of the New Testament. In Joel chapter 2, we see a promise to the same sons and daughters of the children of Israel, which the Apostle Peter had related to in the first Christian Pentecost. And I refer to Acts chapter 2. And ye shall know that I am, I'm reading a larger portion of it than Peter had cited in Acts chapter 2, as it's recorded by Luke anyway. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am Yahweh your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, not other people's sons and daughters, but your sons and your daughters, referring to the children of Israel. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And these words were spoken to my people, and addressing them, these prophecies were for their sons and daughters. They are also the servants and the handmaids, as we read in Isaiah chapters 41 through 44, repeated references to Jacob Israel as Yahweh's servant, speaking collectively of the people. And that um, all flesh is clearly only referring to the children of Israel. That's another point where... They'll insist that means uh, every race and every people, right? But it's yeah, clearly that's... in the context. I believe you used an example last week, right? Where if was it a mayor? If, if he's only speaking to that certain people, it only applies to those people, right? In the context. Well, well, right. If, if I write a book that says I love Volkswagens, and in the opening chapters. I describe myself as a collector of Volkswagens and I have all these beautiful Volkswagens and I wouldn't look at another car and, and not ever looking at another car. I have a garage full of Volkswagens and, or maybe a whole car lot, right? If I'm wealthy, but then in the middle of the book, I suffer some calamity and go through a crisis of three or four chapters if at the end of the book I explain that I had to sell all my cars, would you think that I sold a Cadillac or, or a Chevy? Of course not. You would understand where I said all my cars, that I was talking about all my Volkswagens. That's context. The Bible is the same way. You can't take these words and phrases out of their context. So all flesh is all of the children of Israel who are living at any one time. There might be other contexts somewhere in Scripture where the phrase is used in a different context where the scope is different. But here it's very clearly referring to the children of Israel. And only they in Scripture had a promise of that spirit. That would be another topic. 
In Isaiah chapter 45, Yahweh refers to the disobedience of Israel, where he said, Woe unto him that strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. A potsherd is a broken piece of clay. Shall the clay say to him that fashions it, What makest thou, or thy work? He has no hands. Let me rephrase that. A potsherd is a broken piece of clay, but it's broken from a pottery jar or, or some other implement. And when the implement was no longer needed, it would be broken. And the pieces would be used for various uses. They, or if the pottery jar became broken, use. The pieces would be used to scribble notes on or for children's writing lessons and things like that, where they would scratch the alphabet out. And those things have been actually found by archaeologists. Pots herds with messages, even important messages, have been found by archaeologists. So as chapter 45 of Isaiah progresses, in a further prophecy of Cyrus, king of Persia, who is mentioned at the end of chapter 44, and who was not even yet born when Isaiah wrote, we see a promise that the captivity would be released, and the word of Yahweh says, Thus saith Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask of me things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. I have made the earth, and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. The New Testament fulfills one element of what Yahweh had promised to do with his sons and daughters, and it was promised for them alone. The redemption could not have happened as Yahweh had planned it unless the temple was rebuilt. And therefore, after prophesying what would be accomplished through Cyrus, we read in verse 17 of the chapter, and this is, ask of me what to do, what I will do concerning my sons. Ask of me things to come concerning my sons. And later on, after those things are explained, we read in verse 17, But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 25, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. These promises are not done away with or transferred to some other people in the New Testament, but rather it states the purpose of Christ, that it was to fulfill these prophecies, these promises. It, it states the purpose of Christ, which was to fulfill these promises, period. Yahweh is speaking as Redeemer throughout these chapters. He's speaking of himself as thy Savior and thy Redeemer. So when the Redeemer and the Savior come, when he comes, he's not going to change these promises and redeem and save some other people who don't have anything to be redeemed from or saved from. In Galatians chapter 4, we see another occurrence of the word adoption in Paul's epistles. 
And there, it is also apparent that the adoption is only for the children of Israel. First, in Galatians 3, Paul told his readers that wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, his schoolmaster and the Galatians schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So where in the very next verse he said, For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. He could only have been speaking of those same people who had been under the law, and the law was only ever given to the children of Israel. So in Galatians chapter 4, where the subject has not changed, he wrote that Christ came under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Therefore, the adoption, and it's the same word, Thessia, of course, the adoption is only for those who had once been under the law. And, and once you're under the law, you can't just, yet you're bound to that. Your ancestors bound you to that. Throughout the Bible, there's all sorts of proofs that it, a father can bind his children to a pledge or an oath, and that the children had to live with that pledge or that oath. That's what the promises to Abraham are. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, you were bought with a price and you are not your own. Today, in this modern world of Judaism, ruling over the world through pop culture, but we had this odd concept of liberty and freedom and human rights, but we're not our own. We didn't create ourselves. We have no true liberty, freedom, or human rights without the God that created us. And he defines what our liberty and freedoms and rights are. He defines that. We can't define it for ourselves. Yeah, to them, the government owns us and, and our children, right? But but um, in context, what you said, if you expect the blessings and all the good stuff, you also get the curses and, and you know, anything, as you said, you're bound to whatever your father, uh, you know, binds you to, right? And then that can be good things as well, right? Absolutely. And, and it is good things as long as as long as we don't sin and suffer the bad things. But those promises were to a particular people who must have been the, the white races of Europe because that's where the apostles, the apostles stood the, un, understood these promises. Paul isn't saying these things because they sound cool. Where were Chinamen ever under the law? Or, or Africans, Negroes, any other race, where were they ever under the law? Most of the white races were never under the law in ancient times. But today we know that most of the white race that we consider to be European actually descended from the ancient children of Israel, in whole or in part. So finally, in Ephesians chapter 1, we read one more occasion where Paul used the term adoption. And he wrote in verse 4, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 
having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So the people to whom Paul was speaking must have been chosen before the foundation of the world, or society, if you will. And that can only describe the call of Abraham and the passing down of the blessings to Jacob Israel, and they are once again the predestinated. So their calling must have been described in the law and the prophets. Nobody else was ever predestinated, and therefore the adoption is only for the ancient children of Israel and their descendants. In our last presentation, in relation to the subjects of redemption, we had cited the words of Peter from chapter 2 of his first epistle. We've already mentioned this this evening, who wrote describing the Christians of Anatolia as a holy nation, not nations, but nation, and a peculiar people, not peoples, but people, telling them that ye are a chosen generation or race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, a promise which is many times expressed in the Old Testament for the children of Israel, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy. Why would they not obtain mercy? Because they were being punished. This is only speaking of Israelites. Only Israelites were being punished, but now have obtained mercy. Only Israelites needed mercy from their punishment, the passage in that last verse is a direct reference to Hosea chapter 1, and I've already stated this, but I'll state it again, where we read an announcement relating to the children of Israel, which says, For ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. And then immediately after that, there is a promise of reconciliation and adoption, or the placing of a son, and it says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, Ye are not my people, the estrangement. There it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God, the reconciliation and adoption. This promise was made only to those who were already sons. And there was no place in the words of the prophets where those who are not already sons could somehow become sons. So nobody else was predestinated. This leads us to discuss another aspect of Paul's ministry, as he himself had called it the ministry, ministry of reconciliation. I don't know if you have anything yeah, to add. Today, people, people have a, a completely um, wrong idea of what sin is, right? They, As we just said, the government rules over them, and they tell us what's right or wrong. And, and you know, today we have, like, racism and, and all, all crap like that, which is not found in the Bible at all, right? And um, the, the only sin is if Yahweh says that it's a sin. That's the only reason it's wrong, because he tells us, right? 
And um, only, as we've said again many times, we were only given the law, so we're the only ones going to be held accountable. And if you look at the other races, the way they live, they're never held accountable, right? That the the living conditions they live in their own countries and uh, all the evil that the Jews have done to us in our own countries, they're never held accountable, right? Only if um, we catch them and and we uh, deal with them. But Clearly, they don't suffer from any consequences. It's only us. And um, we're meant to uh, look after our own race, but have no care for, for the other races. That's another aspect people don't understand, right? Well, right. The government has become God for most people. And the government makes their rules. So it was natural to be racist in the ancient world. The children of Israel would never have let a nigger into the temple, or a Chinaman, or an Indian, or even a white Persian, or a, or a white Assyrian. Therefore, racism was systematic because it's racism that's natural. I'm not afraid of that word, racism. It's not a curse to me because I don't care about the government's laws. We can please God or we could please men. The apostles went along with the laws of Rome and first century Judea up to the point where they were forced to abandon the laws of God and they refused to do it. And that's where we, if we are true Christians, authentic Christians, that's where we must also draw the line. It's natural to be a racist. God demands us to be racists. That, that's why Paul used that term fornication. He told the Corinthians. And, and this is going on in, in his first epistle to the Corinthians. That epistle was written from Ephesus and we know that Paul was in Ephesus from about, if I'm not mistaken, if I don't, I'm pretty sure I remember this accurately, from about 54, 55 AD up to about 57 AD, Paul was in Ephesus three years. And it's in the later chapters of Acts. I believe it's Acts chapters 18, 19, Acts chapter 19 primarily. Anyway, Paul's there three years, and that's where he wrote his first epistle to the Corinthians from as he was about to leave Ephesus. Then he wrote a second epistle to the Corinthians a very short time later, in 57 AD, when Paul was actually on his way to Corinth, or hoping to get there, and he did. So that's immaterial. Paul told the Corinthians, 26 years after the resurrection of Christ, not to commit fornication, as your fathers had committed fornication, referring to those who were in the exodus with Moses, as he told them. And in one day, 24,000 fell. And there's only one event that Paul could have been referring to. And that was where the men of Israel joined themselves to the daughters of Moab, which is described in Genesis chapter 24. I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 24. That's where it's described. So, Numbers chapter 25, I'm sorry. The children of Israel committed whoredom with the daughters of Moab 
in Numbers chapter 25. And in that one day, tens of thousands of Israelites were destroyed by a plague until Phineas ran a spear through one of the chiefs, I believe, of the tribe of Simeon, and a Midianite woman that he was coupled with on the floor of a tent. One single spear killed them both. They must have been coupled in fornication, in, in intercourse. So that stayed the plague. Why did that stay the plague? Because Phineas, who was re awarded a priesthood from that point, stood his ground against the race-mixing and fornication, the wanton sexual intercourse, contrary to the law that the men of Israel had engaged in. When he stood against that, and Paul is telling the Corinthians not to commit that same form of fornication, which was race-mixing with the Moabites, the law says that a Moabite is not to come into the congregation of Yahweh. Now, I understand that Ruth was called a Moabite, but it's proven, it's demonstrable that Ruth was called a Moabite for geographical reasons, not because of her race. She was actually an Israelite living in the land of Moab. That can be demonstrated from the book of Ruth itself. Yahweh God is not going to break his own law. So do we interpret the scriptures in a way that forces the view that God doesn't care about his law. And once again, just take those Bibles and throw them in the trash because none of the words matter and nothing matters. We should all become nihilists and hedonistic pagans because nothing matters if we want to think that God breaks his law or that God doesn't keep his promises as he made them. So that leads us to the ministry of reconciliation. Sin offerings in ancient Israel were to make reconciliation on behalf of the people. For example, as we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, So they killed the bullocks, and the priest received the blood, and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, when they had killed the rams, they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They killed also the lambs, and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. And they brought forth the he-goats for the sin offering before the king and the congregation. And they laid their hands upon them, and the priests killed them, and they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all Israel. And the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. So in Hebrews chapter 2, Paul of Tarsus described the sacrifice of Yahshua Christ in the same manner where he wrote, speaking of Christ, For verily he took not on him, and I'm quoting the King James Version, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, as Paul defines that in Romans chapter 9, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. 
So where Paul wrote, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that in verse 3, I delivered unto you first all of that which I had also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We know what scriptures it was that Christ had died according to, which are the scriptures explaining the sacrifice necessary to make reconciliation on behalf of the people of Israel. There were never any sacrifices made on behalf of non-Israelites, as non-Israelites were never under the law, and therefore non-Israelites cannot be the subjects of any reconciliation. Now, there, there were misinterpretations which cloud these issues, so I will also talk about that. This might be confounded where in Romans chapter 5, Paul said, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, meaning his resurrection. But the word enemies can describe one's own people who are alienated and does not necessarily describe non-Israelites. So we read in Micah chapter 7, a passage which evokes the words of Christ in the New Testament. For the son dishonors the father. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So that term enemies doesn't mean that Paul thought the Romans or, or himself were ever non-Israelites, right? The fact that the enemies of which Paul spoke in that passage were Israelites is also clear where the context is set in the verses immediately prior where Paul wrote, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, meaning they were under the law, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Then, as he described later in that same chapter, just a few verses later, sin is not imputed where there is no law. So Christ died only for those who had been under the law, which are the children of Israel. But the vast majority of the the Israelites of his own time were no longer keeping the law as they were taken into captivity for having become pagans. That's why they were taken into captivity. That's why they were punished in the first place. That is why Paul explained in Romans chapter 4 that the promises were not to those of the law only, but also to those of the faith of Abraham, which describes what Abraham had believed that the promise was certain to all of his seed as it was written. As it was written, it cannot be interpreted any other way. Right, so if you understand that all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, I'm, I'm talking of animals, was to cleanse the sin of Israel, and that Christ was that final sacrifice for the children of Israel, Nowhere does it suddenly change to everybody, right? And and that's where, where these churches come up with 
Christ changed everything. He he made it universal, but it doesn't say that anywhere, does it? Right. Well, well, absolutely. It it it's very clear from the context where Paul first used that term reconciled, which is why I had cited that particular passage from Romans chapter five. That the reconciliation is not for enemies so that they could become Israelites. The reconciliation is for Israelites who had become enemies. There's a huge difference there, but the context proves that that is the only valid interpretation. So the Catholic Church teaches that enemies could become Israelites, but the Bible teaches that the Israelites had become enemies and they were being offered reconciliation. It's the exact opposite of what the church teaches. So another place where the reconciliation in Christ may be confounded or confused is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul described his ministry of reconciliation, and he wrote, according to the King James Version, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, first you have to be in Christ. You must be in Christ first. He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things of God. Now, the King James Version added the word are in there, and that's not right. And all things of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world or society, as that would be better translated, to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Right there, we see what he means by the world, because only the children of Israel Israel were under the law, and since sin was not imputed where there is no law in Romans chapter 5, then he is speaking about the trespasses of the children of Israel. And that's why he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, when we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he has made him a sin to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, this can't possibly apply to anyone who was not under the law, who was not an Israelite in the first place. The new creature of which Paul speaks is the man who follows the spirit, as opposed to the man who follows the flesh. Paul explained the same concept at greater length in Romans chapter 6 and 7, and also more concisely in Galatians chapters 3 and 5, where he wrote, and I'm citing from Galatians chapter 5, this I say then, walk in the spirit 
and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the new creature, the new man, is the man of the spirit, as opposed to the man of the flesh. And Paul goes on and says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would or that you desire to do. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law as a necessary digression. This does not absolve a man from having to keep the commandments. As Paul further wrote in the next few verses, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, or pharmakia, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So what Paul is describing as a new creature is the man who depends upon Yahshua Christ as his source of righteousness and not on the rituals of the law, which had formerly absolved a man of his sin. The rituals, also being fleshly, they too are done away with in Christ, and the spiritual man is not under any law, because keeping the commandments and not committing such sins, he remains blameless, and even if he sins, as the Apostle John explained in chapter 2 of his first epistle, he has a propitiation in Christ. That is the reconciling factor between God and the scattered divorced children of Israel, the sacrifice which Christ had made to free them from the judgments of the law. But since Christ insisted that they keep the commandments, they nevertheless have that obligation. That is how Christ had reconciled the world or society to himself, as the society was already inherited by the seed of Abraham according to the promises. They are the world which he reconciled, as it says in chapter 18 of the Wisdom of Solomon. For in the long garment, the long garment of the high priest, was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the Father's graven and thy majesty upon the diadem of his head. And there's a companion verse to that, which we can cite and cross-reference in Isaiah, which says that Israel was to fill the face of the earth with fruit. I believe that's in Isaiah chapter 34. That's the intention of God. Not that everybody on the planet become Israel, but that the children of Israel filled the face of the world with fruit. The word translated as reconcile in the King James Version of Paul's epistles is catalasso except on two occasions in Colossians chapter 1, where it is apocatalasso. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see the noun form of the same word. Catalage is reconciliation. 
According to Liddell and Scott, Catalasso is primarily to exchange one thing for another, and then to change a person from enmity to friendship, to reconcile, or in the passive voice, to become reconciled. Citing Herodotus, the tragic poets Sophocles and Euripides, and the New Testament. So it's being used in the New Testament the same way that those ancient authors had used the terms, because the meanings of Greek words do not change simply because they appear in the New Testament, like father and sperma, pater, sperma, um, Adelphus or brother, the meanings of those words don't change simply because they're in the Bible. That's ridiculous. The noun catalage is assigned the same exact meanings. Citing the tragic poet Aeschylus, the 4th century BC orations of Demosthenes and the New Testament, the word apocatalasso, which appears only in Colossians, is given a stronger meaning, to reconcile again, where only the New Testament is cited. But the definition is in keeping with similar verbs written with the same prefix. For example, didomi is to give, but apodidomi is to give back or restore. So apocatalasso describes something which was at one time reconciled or in friendship with you, but was alienated or estranged, and then it was brought back to be reconciled again. Thus we see words associated with reconciliation in both Romans and 2 Corinthians appear once again where Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, and you that were sometime alienated, and we will discuss that phrase, and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. There is surrounding language in that chapter concerning all things and every creature, which may cause confusion, but we would assert that all things is a reference to all of the things between God and Israel. And the phrase every creature is the same exact Greek phrase translated as whole creation in Romans chapter 8, where it speaks of a peculiar kind of creation, a peculiar kind or perhaps class of creation, as opposed to other things which God had created. The phrase refers not to all of every type, but to all of one type or kind, everything after its kind. But the key words in this phrase, verse 21, in the key words in this verse, verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1, which I've just read, are alienated and reconciled. The word translated as alienated is the verb op alatriao, and that means to estrange or alienate, or in the passive, to be alienated from someone of something. It's alatriao, which is a verb that can be 
related to someone who is another or different or something other, and op, it's that same prefix that we see on apo, catalasso, except that the O is dropped because it, it precedes a vowel. So it's basically the same concept to be op alatriao, to be alienated, you must have at one time been a part of something or had the company and friendship of someone. So apolatriao means to estrange or alienate or to be alienated from someone or something. So to be alienated or estranged from God, one must have had a relationship with God in the first place. And according to the scriptures, only the children of Israel ever had such a relationship. So the word reconciled is from the verb apokatalasso, to reconcile again. And Paul used even stronger language, indicating that these people had a pre-existing relationship here than he had in his epistles to the Corinthians or Romans. Although in other ways, in those epistles, he also indicated such a pre-existing relationship in more ways than one. And that's uh, Christianity in a nutshell, right? That um, God's people go astray, he comes down himself, sacrifices himself, and then they're reconciled, right? It's, it's as simple as that, and it's only for us, right? It's only for the children of Israel, period, who are all of the same race and ostensibly the white Europeans because that's where the apostles brought this gospel. That they weren't using these words cheaply. These words mean what they say. And you can't take one phrase, such as every creature, out of context, which is even an unfortunate translation. You can't take one phrase out of the concept out of the context and make your own narrative without relating it properly to these people who were estranged, to these people who were alienated, for these to these people who were promised reconciliation in the Old Testament. You can't do that. It's not, oh, you could do it, but it's dishonest. It's patently dishonest. It's robbery, and a man is trying to rob God. He's not robbing me, because in the end, God is going to prevail. Whether I belong or not doesn't matter. God is going to prevail. The prophets inform us that the children of Israel would indeed be reconciled in spite of their having been put off in punishment. Writing after most of the children of Israel and Judah were already taken into captivity, we read in Isaiah chapter 41, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham my friend, Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yeah, I will help thee. 
Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be nothing. And they that strive with thee shall perish. Yahweh God favors the children of Israel. He favors them at a period that's long after their having been taken into captivity. Some of them were taken into captivity 45 years before Isaiah wrote this. The, Samaria, the people of Samaria, the capital of the 10 northern tribes, were taken into captivity 25 years before Isaiah wrote this. 46 fenced cities of Judah were taken into captivity by the Assyrians perhaps five or six years before Isaiah wrote this. But Yahweh has not cast them away. He's telling them not to be afraid and promising them reconciliation and redemption here in Isaiah chapter 41. Putting the Bible in its appropriate historical context, these things cannot be denied. Putting the New Testament into that same context and accepting that the words say what they mean by their Greek definitions, the way the ancient Greeks used those same terms, this cannot be denied. Over a hundred years later, writing as the Babylonians were on the verge of destroying Jerusalem and bringing the remainder of Judah into captivity, we read in Jeremiah chapter 33, <clears throat> Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, saying, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which Yahweh has chosen, he has even cast them off? Thus they have despised my people, that they should no more be a nation before them. And he's speaking, addressing the Babylonians. <clears throat> Thus saith Yahweh, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast the seed away, the seed of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. So that also describes the reconciliation found in Christ. And as long as there are day and night, Yahweh God shall never cast away the seed of Israel. Yet only the small percentage of Israelites who returned with Zerubbabel 70 years after Jeremiah had written those words were ever called Judeans. And they were never called Jews. They were called Judeans, but they were never called Jews. But in Jeremiah chapter 3, we know that the children of Israel were in a place where there were not any Jews. As he was told to go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith Yahweh. And I will not cause my anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith Yahweh, and will not keep anger forever. 700, probably 650 years later, the apostles brought the gospel north. They didn't bring it in any other direction. They brought it north, north and west, 
but they brought it north. The Roman Catholic claims that the apostles went to India or that the apostles had went to Ethiopia are lies. Yes, Christianity did ultimately spread to those places, but those people corrupted it immediately. It wasn't meant for them. Paul didn't write any epistles to anyone in the East or in the South. He only wrote to European nations or to people in Anatolia in the North. Peter went to Babylon, which is east of Jerusalem, but there was still a large portion of the Babylonian captivity dwelling in and around Babylon, in northern Arabia, in Mesopotamia, and Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. But neither did Christianity last there. It did not endure. And look at it today. And we see that... Um... The, the last waves of um, or Scythians that came into Europe, they weren't Christian, right? You, you know, like the, the um, you know, I, even after the Huns, waves that came later, like the, if, if the Mongols, any of them were Scythians, the Golden Horde, any like that, they were never Christian. So you can see Christian, Christianity never really um, took off, uh, you know, in the East at all. Did it? Well, well, no, it didn't. And, and, I believe in pre-communist China, in the 13th century Jesuits, who were really there for, for other nefarious purposes, they were thrown out of China. They threw them out. And, and that there were many missionaries throughout the Middle Ages to the Muslims, to the Arabs, trying to convert them to Christianity because these Judaized Christians of the Middle Ages thought that they should convert Muslims to Christianity. Martin Luther never thought so. Martin Luther had said that in his time, the whole world had already accepted Christ voluntarily. That's what he said. So Martin Luther's world had nothing to do with Muslims. He said that in his treatise on the Jews and their lies. While and, he spoke um, in about... In Ethiopia, the, the, there's even paintings where you can see... Um, that there were a few white Christians that must have spread there, but you can see in the pictures that they're race mixing, that their wives are black, and then Christianity just disappears after that, right? Absolutely. Well, this is going to lead us to our next proof from Paul's epistles, which is the family of the faith, and that'll have to wait until next week. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh, Bill. Thanks for me. God, praise Yahweh, God of the European people. Thank you. Absolutely. Those people that Jeremiah said were in the north. Jeremiah chapter 3. Yahweh bless. Good night.